Welcome to Mind the Gaps, a women, peace and security podcast. On this podcast, we explore the world of women, peace and security, or WPS, through speaking to experts and practitioners from around the world, working under the umbrella of WPS. My name is Eva Tabassum, and I'm the Director of Gender Action for Peace and Security, also known as GAPS. Join us as we release a new episode bi-weekly focusing on another important aspect of the WPS agenda, where I will be speaking to some brilliant guests who will share their takes and recommendations on this important topic. Welcome back to Mind the Gaps, a Women, Peace and Security podcast. My name is Florence Wallacar and I'm the Policy and Advocacy Manager at GAPS. I'm pleased to be hosting this episode where we'll be discussing the important and essential topic of funding. Civil society organisations, or CSOs, particularly women's rights organisations, WROs, are essential for the achievement of women and girls' rights, peace and security through their programmes, service delivery and policy and advocacy work, yet their role is often unrecognised and underfunded. The international community has long committed to supporting an independent and strong civil society. Through the Women, Peace and Security agenda, the international community has also committed to funding WROs and CSOs for their provision of essential services, their vital role in advocacy, transformational change and movement building, and their role in achieving women and girls' rights. Despite these commitments, AWID, the Association for Women's Rights in Development, estimated that globally only 1% of gender equality funding actually goes directly to women's organisations. There are many barriers to women's organisations accessing funding, including, but not limited to, a lack of available funding itself, information about funding opportunities not being shared, inaccessible application processes and bureaucratic requirements, and required organisational formalities. When WROs do receive funding, it's often restricted to donor priorities and agendas, and has heavy and unnecessary reporting burdens. WROs and CSOs, who are forced to follow donor-driven agendas, often lose their staff to bigger, better-funded organisations, whose funding means they can recruit for the longer term. The organisations which lose out end up delivering on short-term, projectized funding, and are in a constant cycle of funding applications and reporting, which is often the norm. Civil society has long advocated for long-term, core, flexible funding to enable WROs to undertake their vital work. GAPS's recent research, The Key to Change, Supporting Civil Society and Women's Rights Organisations in Fragile and Conflict-Affected Contexts, demonstrates that WROs and CSOs need core funding directly from donors, as there is a clear and extensive lack of direct funding, which impacts on WROs and CSOs' ability to undertake essential and transformational work. In the context of the UK, In 2021, Overseas Development Assistance, or ODA, spending was reduced from 0.7% to 0.5% of gross national income. In 2022, further pressures were placed on the budget as spending for other purposes, including hosting refugees in the UK, were counted towards ODA spend. As we talk in 2023, ongoing cuts are expected and there is no indication of returning ODA spending to 0.7%. These cuts have already had a severe and disproportionate impact on women and girls, with a significant reduction of funding to programmes aimed at reaching those furthest behind, and the direct impact of cuts to specific gender interventions, 
including violence against women and girls and sexual and reproductive health and rights, which has had a negative impact on wide efforts to advance gender equality. There are currently no mechanisms in place to monitor the impact of UK odour cuts on the women, peace and security sphere, making it harder to assess the true long-term impact on the sector. Nor is there any dedicated budget or financial tracking system under the new UK Women, Peace and Security National Action Plan. These trends are accompanied by a longer-term decline in UK spending on civilian peacebuilding, conflict prevention and resolution. I'm thrilled to have with me today two brilliant guests to discuss the funding landscape of WPS globally and in the UK, as well as the research findings and recommendations from GAPS's Key to Change research. First, we have Helen Casey Norha, who is the Executive Director of the Women's International Peace Centre a regional organisation that promotes women's participation in peacebuilding. Her research and publication interests include feminist peacebuilding, women peace and security in Africa, feminist foreign policies and conflict-related sexual violence. We are also joined by Eva Tabassum, who you will have heard leading the conversation in our previous podcasts. Eva is the director at GAPS UK, a network of development, human rights, humanitarian and peacebuilding INGOs. She has vast experience in humanitarian development and women, peace and security policy, advocacy and programming, and has worked across Europe and the Middle East, focusing on youth participation, women's rights, gender and refugee law. So thank you both so much for joining me for this really important and integral conversation. Um, I wondered if we could start off with you just telling us about the global funding landscape when it comes to women's rights organisations working in fragile and conflict affected contexts, particularly those working at the national or local level um, and particularly in the global south accessing funding. Um, So Helen, if I could turn to you first. Uh, Thank you very much, Florence, uh, for the invitation to participate in this um, podcast, Mind the Gaps. I really love it. Um, With regards to the question you asked me, the global uh, landscape for funding, particularly uh, for organizations working at national and local level, is very similar to you know the landscape you know for other every other women's rights organization. Um, of course, statistics uh, from um, AWID shows that um, women's rights organizations globally receive one percent of funding, and it has been like that for so many years. And what this has done in terms of um, organizations working at national level, particularly uh, those working in conflict settings and post conflict settings is that a lot of the resources that go into rebuilding uh, countries after conflict or uh, usually goes for humanitarian response. And most of this humanitarian response funding goes to international international governmental organizations. And what this means is that not very much or very little is given to national women's rights organizations. And even when it is given to national and community-based women's rights organizations, most of this funding um, has a lot of bureaucratic processes which are really heavy uh, for many the grassroots women's rights organizations. Just to mention that over the years, we have observed the important work that women 
at the community level are doing in conflict. You see, in, in, in Sudan presently, the, the organizations that are responding to people who are fleeing are women's rights organizations providing um, housing, food, water, and basic needs for people who are running you know, out of the country and fleeing as refugees. These organizations, some of them may not be registered. Some may be registered, but they do not qualify or have not received the kind of funding that will make them to qualify to apply for these, uh, for the big funding. Globally, we've seen that countries like Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, and the UK have made efforts to ensure that they have specific grants that would go to women's rights organizations. However, some of these grants are channeled through organizations like UN Women and other INGOs. So it, it, it Many of them then take off their own administrative costs to manage these grants. And then what goes to women's rights organization is very small and also could also barely pay for their own administrative costs. The only example I've seen is Netherlands that gave funding to organizations, but then you also have to be in a consortium. And being in a consortium could be problematic if you're not able to negotiate your way, you know, to be able to get enough funding for salaries. Everyone is given the same allocation and then you have to negotiate and get. So while some countries are making efforts, uh, particularly those who claim to have feminist foreign policies, are making efforts to ensure that money gets to women, the women's rights organization, the mode is also problematic. Uh, some of them give to women, uh, feminist donors or women's uh, donors, but they also give small amounts of money. And this is based on the fact that they don't get a lot. So many of them make for call for proposals and say, if your annual budget is more than $200,000, do not apply. A lot of national women's rights organizations, their budgets are more than $200,000 per annum, so they don't qualify. But this money has been given to them to give to women's rights organizations. So globally, you know, um, we are seeing that, you know, it is becoming more difficult uh, for women's rights organizations to get money, despite the good intention uh, by some countries to focus on giving them uh, uh, money uh, through... Uh, big organizations. Yeah, I think um, we've definitely witnessed the challenges of the lack of funding being available, but you also raised some really important points about the mode of funding and it being problematic as well. Um, Eva, is there anything you'd like to add to that? And and also, could you tell us a little bit about the funding landscape, particularly in the UK, um, related to the Women, Peace and Security agenda and how that's impacted on women-led organizations' access to funding as well? Yeah, sure. Um, Basically, essentially what Helen has said, right? I mean, the dial still hasn't really shifted. And there's what they say, you know, Awood's figure that's been repeated again and again, that, you know, there's only 1% of uh, aid or foundation grants that um, reach women's rights and feminist organisations. And, and particularly those groups that are working at the intersecting forms of, say, marginalisation. So, you know, LGBTQI, Indigenous migrant refugees, you know, they're funded even less. Um, 
and then overall on odor data uh, on odor sorry um, women's rights organizations only receive 0.13 percent um and specifically women's rights organizations and feminist movements especially in the global south they're continuing to operate on essentially shoestring budgets um, and they're holding the line especially at the minute with the you know the gender anti-gender backlash and the continuing you know shrinking of civic space and you know Helen did recognize that and 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 we we should recognize that donors and governments are trying to make an effort to directly fund women rights organizations um, and civil society orgs um, and and you know we recently saw with the UK specifically early this year with the launch of the women and girls strategy we saw the launch of the or, or the publicly announced um, partnership with equality fund which was a 33 million uh, fund program um, with um, directly with the equality fund which is now in its second year so that's welcomed but it's not enough and this is all happening in the context of odor cuts, right, for the UK specifically. We've all, I don't think we're anywhere near levels pre-pandemic and the cuts since then have had significant and severe disproportionate impact on women and girls. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of the landscape um, and the promise to restore the budget for women and girls that was made in November 2021 still hasn't been done. So, you know, these are additional impacts on women's rights organisations, civil society organisations who, who are doing the most, who, who are on the front lines. So it, it's, um, it's a mixed bag. Um, and, and while there is some progress, it's not enough. Mm, thanks, Eva. And I mean, what would you say those challenges mean for the implementation of women, peace and security more broadly? If we look at the UK, for example, we have the new Fifth National Action Plan. Again, that's all, that also came after the recently launched Women and Girls Strategy. You know, it's unclear how much money or budget has been dedicated for that. So how can we then measure the progress of the implementation of that National Action Plan? Um, specifically, again, like I said, when we all we've been given is cuts, there's cuts to this, there's cuts to that. So that will hinder the progress of the agenda. And globally, you know, that's what we're hearing from, you know, the Secretary General annual reports on women, peace and security. When we're, we're actually regressing on our uh, advancement of the agenda. So I think, you know, we first also need to get back up to 0 0.7 for the UK. We're still at 0 0.5. Um, and, you know, th this will have a, a, a big impact on the work that's been done, specifically with the new NAP recognizing and mentioning having a key um, partnerships with uh, civil society as um, one of the implementers of the NAP, like a, a recognition of that. I mean, you can have that and that's all great, but it's not going to mean anything if there's no money to support that. Yeah, I think they're really important reflections. Um, and I think it's important as well that it's noted that, you know, some progress is happening. Um, we are, you know, seeing some positive um, mechanisms for funding, which are incredibly welcomed um, but a lot a lot of that um, movement towards providing more funding for women's rights orgs or women-led organizations is also still funneled through through other actors through interlocutors through third parties and um, so you've both mentioned you know like INGOs um, or other um, funds um, where funding is given and then redistributed um, to women's rights orgs or women-led orgs and I wondered if you could tell me a little bit 
more um, about uh, what that looks like in practice and and perhaps what some of the challenges or benefits um, of multilateral organisations or INGOs acting as interlocutors and dispersing funding to to smaller organisations. And perhaps, Helen, I'll come to you first on that. Uh, I will start with the benefits. Uh, One is, I mean, uh, these INGOs and multilaterals have more access. Uh, They are better trusted by uh, these countries and donors so that we get the money, you know, uh, for for women's rights work. Um, The other is that, you know, women's rights organizations, working organizations, working at national and uh, local grassroots levels, we then be able to assess this funding, which they usually might not get directly, you know, from these multilaterals. Those are the two things I can quickly think about. But in terms of the challenges, one is the unequal power relationship between women's rights organizations working on WPS uh, or gender equality issues and these multilaterals. It's not a, a level playing field where you have the power to negotiate. A lot of times, these organizations already determine the objectives and in some cases, the outputs for these projects. And they would actually do calls for proposals based on those outputs on which they have gotten this money. Sometimes, it may be different or similar to the situation on ground. So at the initial stages or even applying, women's rights organizations do not have that uh, opportunity to determine what this funding should be going for because it's already determined, it has already been received. The other is that the process of these multilaterals and INGOs writing proposals for this funding is not inclusive. There are very few occasions where they include or invite women's rights organizations at national level or community level to engage and involve them in the proposal writing process. And if you are not part of the initial process that got the funding, where do you begin to negotiate in terms of your most important um, areas of focus, but also for your budget, particularly when it comes to institutional uh, grant, you know, funding for organizations. So this creates gap between what the organizations want and what these multilaterals and donors want. Uh, So you find that it it is usually very difficult uh, for you to to be able to articulate the needs that you see or what you have agreed or seen with your communities and then what you're going to be uh, fundraising for. While it is understood that some of these organizations could have done some needs assessment, but conflict and post-conflict situations are very fluid. They change uh, very often. So you, you, you can't really say, you know, that what you saw is the same, what you saw last month is the same thing as this month. Even in a day, things can change. And COVID taught us that this crisis can change within hours, in days, and it doesn't really take so many, you know, so long. The other is that this approach actually keeps national organizations and smaller organizations in support and dependency mode 
all the time. Some of these grants are given for short term. You will see some three months, some six months, some one year, maximum two years. The issues of women's rights that we are dealing with, social norms and cultural norms, cannot change in two years. It takes five to ten years. But when these grants come like this, organizations are continuously in dependency mode, uh, looking for where to get money to continue the work. The worst part is that many times the projects end when the desired change has not been achieved. So when we are asking and UN Women is projecting that it will take more than 200 years to achieve gender equality, they are correct. Because the mode of funding will not allow national women's rights organizations and organizations working at the community level to do extensive work in order to change behaviors and social norms that continue to perpetuate gender inequality. Thank you so much, Helen. I think you make such an incredibly important point there that long term change requires long term support. Um, and that's something that we've we've heard across the board for, for such a long time. And yet these unequal power relationships and the, the kind of support and dependency model, it's not shifting. Eva, did you want to add to that? Yeah, sure. And again, completely echo everything that Helen has said, and, and it probably hits her more, obviously, given the nature of her organisation and where she's based. And, and I think it's amazing because I've heard Helen say the same things, you know, over and over again. And, and, and it, again, other organisations re- repeat the same things that they need for, you know, for real gender transformative work. And it's such slow progress um, or, or, or such reluctance to kind of shift the way we think about funding and the way donors um, give money. And when we specifically look at kind of multilateral organisations and INGOs acting as this kind of third intermediary, um, you, you know, they can, you know, INGOs funds and networks, they have, they are trying to move towards kind of systems and processes of more equal partnerships with, with WROs and CSOs. And so I think in the, in the short term, they need to make sure that, you know, that they do have equal partnerships. You know, Helen mentioned this unequal partnerships with women's rights organization, and it's a big problem. I think that they really need to make sure that they think about those principles of working, you know, when, especially when they're receiving funding to work with women's rights organizations, they actually really have to uh, involve women's rights organizations from the very beginning, from the very conceptual start of whatever it is, whatever programming it is that they're doing. And, you know, in the longer term, they need to be using their diplomacy to consistently advocate for, you know, um, direct funding to women's rights organisations and, and um, use their, their access and their, and their positioning to ensure that, you know, donors, governments are um, working to change their models of funding and in an effort to work directly. Uh, with women's rights organisations and to ensure that there's this, you know, um, direct access as well to civil society orgs or women's rights organisations, you know, with the third party removed, because ultimately that's where we want to end up. I also think INGOs and also have a responsibility to make sure that they're constantly reflecting and ensuring that they're not taking up space or occupying space and resources, because that's always, you know, we, we always see that still, you know, we still see that happening, sorry. Um, so there is a lot of things that, you know, they, that can be done and need to be done. 
you know, there are some benefits because of the current ecosystem of funding where INGOs have to pay that third, uh, play that third party role so that they can absorb some of that compliance and due diligence processes. So it's all interlinked. You know, we have to look at the, the modalities of funding. If we have really heavy, burdensome reporting processes and compliance processes, women rights organizations and civil society organizations will automatically be excluded because they don't have the capacity to be able to apply or, um, you know, submit themselves for a call for funding in, you know, whether that's because of the short space of time or the multiple kind of the really burdensome application process um, that's needed to be done for, uh, for funding. So often we see that, you know, um, women rights organizations, civil society organizations will work with the third party so that they can absorb all of that uh, kind of process. You know, our, we did a paper, gaps in the paper actually with Helen, uh, when, with the Women's International Peace Centre and others um, in the network, it's called The Key to Change. And we looked at, you know, what can be done in terms of adapting compliance and due diligence and standardizing those processes to support women rights organizations to get direct funding, which will allow them to use funding um, according to their needs and priorities and the context that they're working in. Thanks so much, Eva. I mean, you've given some really clear recommendations there, both to INGOs as well as um, recommendations to, to funders, donors themselves. Um, Helen, do, do you have any kind of clear recommendations that you would give to funders to ensure that funding actually does reach national and local civil society organisations? Basically, it's just envisioning a different mode of work. Um, you know, the call for proposals to make it clear or within their own framework, they should really allocate specific direct funding to women's rights organizations working at national level. And uh, while we do understand that some of these NGOs give in-depth assistance or that provide the funding, also some of them are uh, government-based or co-NGOs, then need to be supported by resources. And it is possible to also make specific allocations to other funding for women's rights organizations. So um, many organizations are supporting directly direct funding to women's rights organizations. And we see that using funding So what do you think, Eva, are the current barriers to the implementation of some of these recommendations? Helen has mentioned, you know, we need the political will there, but it doesn't seem to be moving the dial. Um, yes. I mean, I think a lot of it's political will, um, <clears throat> but also, you know, there, for example, like compliance and stuff, we're always told this is to do with like 
legislation, anti-terrorism legislations and so on. And and actually, you know, we've had the conversation, maybe we need to look beyond their foreign office, right? You know, because, you know, like Helen said, the literature's out there, we know what the issues are. Now, do we need to engage organisations like the Treasury Department? Do we need to look at how money is dispersed? What are they required, you know, the compliance requirements? You know, do we need to have a conversation with them to think about actually how we can uh, make it less burdensome so that we can do some of this direct funding? But that's going to have to take a shift, um, not just on, say, country level. It needs to take a shift, like, I think, you know, maybe regional, you know, across the EU, for example, across all, say, uh, Global North donors. Um, and, you know, some people are trying, you know, some are trying to do that, so like the Netherlands and so on. But I think it, it, ne it necessitates a conversation that needs to be had. Um, and, and we're certainly looking at that, you know, specifically now with the Student National Action Plan and thinking about entry points and having those conversations. And I think other than political uh, will, I think, well, I guess it's linked to political will. But, you know, we saw, for example, with Afghanistan, and, um, you know, our members, Women for Women and Safe World did this really um, important work on resourcing change. And, you know, they were looking at supporting women rights organisations in Afghanistan. And then post-2021, we saw that, you know, donors stopped funding. And, I mean, this is exactly what we didn't want or you wouldn't want. You would want them to continue to fund women rights organisations because this is the exact purpose of the project. You know, they need flexible and core funding so that they, you know, can work in such volatile and complex situations and they can then use those funds according to the you know their own needs and priorities especially when you're working in restrictive contexts so i think that you know if you're championing women and girls rights and you're championing women rights organizations specifically that when it gets hard that you shouldn't stop and that we should look to finding alternative ways to support them and the people that should guide that are women rights organizations I think donors and IGOs do really need to um, work together, ensure that resources and, and, and time, it means that they're learning from each other and supporting movement building. Um, and, you know, this will then allow for kind of strong relationships and trust between donors and women rights orgs. Thanks, Eva. And, and Helen, I'll turn to you. Um, from your experience and the work that you're doing with your organisation, what have you found some of the, the barriers to actually uh, donors, um, INGOs, funders implementing some of those recommendations that you're that you're giving them. Yeah, you know, uh, from my context and experience, you know, from this side of the world, um, a lot of the countries claim to be democratic, but they are very authoritarian. Um, the increasing shrinking civic space uh, that we see, um, some countries have preconditions of what kind of funding uh, NGOs can receive. Um, some other countries monitor uh, income that NGOs receive. So some of those restrictions which have been tied to anti-terrorism financing, um, uh, so there, there are many laws that kind of track monies that come into countries, both for individuals or businesses, but also for, uh, for NGOs. Um, so many of these uh, become problematic, particularly when you say you're working on women, peace and security. A lot of the countries define the differently and so they really watch to see 
what kind of security you know, uh, you're working on. And of course, we are working on human security. Of course, we do not believe in militarization um, and militarism. Uh, but because of the name and the focus of your work, countries or governments could be tracking your funding. And they put sometimes restrictions on what donors can fund and what donors cannot fund. So that also becomes problematic, you know, on our own side, that despite the good intention, sometimes the receiving countries also make it problematic for this support to come to national organizations. So many times they will prefer to channel it through INGOs that are not based in these countries but are able uh, to send money. The other is also the fact that uh, for in many countries, women's rights organizations are subjected to declare their funding and what it is meant for and where it is coming from. Uh, there are some um, people who want to support work, but they do not want to declare who their identity uh, for their own safety, uh, but also to remove biases that countries may have. So you find this kind of, you know, this kind of challenges uh, that we have to deal with even then, you know. So we make these recommendations, give us the money, but the context we are working sometimes does not also allow, you know, for us to be able to do that. But there are many people that, have, of course, have been able to break through these kind of barriers and, you know, national organizations have received funding. Uh, those are it. But then also uh, the other challenge we could be having is despite the fact that many national women's rights organizations have the capacities because of limited allocation of resources for administration, they cannot maintain a, a professional and qualified staff for a long time. Many of these INGOs take this staff. And so it's also a challenge that sometimes the national women's rights organization do not have the capacity in terms of res human resources uh, to be able to implement this project. So there are those dynamics that are tied, you know, to the main issue of them not having access uh, to resources and, and, and vice versa. Um, so these are some of the restrictions we see. There's also the fact that the regulation of NGOs in some of these countries that require you to renew your registration every so, so many years, uh, to register, to have memorandum of understanding with governments and local governments, all of these you know, are, are restrictive in terms of what you can do uh, because if the government does not allow you to register, then how do you do your work? So particularly in our context where there's a law that is coming on uh, organizations working on LGBTI or LGBTI groups, we are going to see massive deregistration of women's rights organizations that are promoting the rights of LGBTQs. So in, in those situations, you know, if you're not registered, even the banks will not open an account for you. So how would you receive the funding? So it then, you know, so these are some of the dynamics and the challenges that, you know, uh, women's rights organizations will face despite the fact that uh, they would want to receive this funding directly. Yeah. Thank you, Lawrence. Mm, thank you, Helen, for sharing that experience. I think what comes out of that is, as well as all of the, you know, the mechanisms and the systems and the modalities of funding um, that need to be challenged and need to be flexible, is also alongside this work 
with funding that needs to happen, there's that work on political action that we need to return to. So funding work goes hand in hand with work that needs to be done on protecting civic space, for example, challenging the rollback um, on women and girls' rights and LGBTIQ plus rights globally and the, um, the need to, to work on the protection of uh, women human rights defenders, that all goes hand in hand with, with ensuring that funding is distributed and goes directly to women-led and women's rights organisations. I'd like to just finish by asking if you can share with me why it's so important that long-term core flexible funding directly reaches national and local civil society organisations, particularly women-led and women rights organisations. And, and that's come out um, already in the conversation. But I think if we, uh, it'd be really great to, to hear that from you. I will start with one to say that conflicts and post-conflict settings are dynamic. You know, um, the fact that we need flexibility in terms of how these resources are used to be able to address issues that, you know, uh, may not be seen at the, at the time of requesting for funding. But secondly, is the fact that women's <laughs> rights issues are intersectional. There are so many issues around women that makes it impossible for us to achieve the human rights of women. The contest, you know, the, the social, the cultural norms that we are dealing with, the fact that you cannot look at one aspect without looking at the other and expect to achieve equality for women. And, and, and of course, the other reason is we need time. You know, peace processes are not events. You know, they take long to achieve. Um, building, rebuilding post-conflict. It's not just one event. There are so many events involved and it all takes time that sustained flexible funding is needed. And what we have seen in many of the conflict set in South Sudan and now with Sudan, Ethiopia, is that you could have two men wearing parties, but there are other rebel groups that are operating. So even if there's a peace agreement, conflict does not really end. And so it is important that some of these issues around conflict that we do not have the capacity to predetermine can be, you know, can be uh, uh, peace building around such work should be allowed because sometimes you can't predetermine, you know, what is going to happen um, while you're building peace. Uh, the people who are also causing violence are busy planning the violence, and we've seen that a lot in in Democratic Republic of Congo as well. So. If we have sustained flexible funding, then you're able to quickly address, you know, such issues as they come up, um, as the rebels attack, you know, that rapid response. But also even as women peace builders and women human rights defenders' lives continuously are in danger, we should have that flexibility to support, to, to get them out of the situation, to provide psychosocial support and what is needed, you know, for their well-being and their self-care. You know, it's not something that you could predetermine the cost at the beginning 
beginning. You know, so we it's it's important that such you know funding coming uh, should be should be flexible, should be sustainable. But it, it, most importantly, that funding should build institutions, contribute to building institutions in a sustainable way. You know that they, such women's rights organizations have staff and are able to give them long-term contracts. You know, people don't want to work in, in organizations that are giving them six-month contract, one-year contract. But if you give someone three years, five years contract, then they are able to settle down and do the work. And they, are, they can't be easily attracted to other people uh, who will give them long-term contract. So basically, I think those are some of the, you know, the reasons why specific funds, you know, should should, should focus um, on women's rights organizations in a sustainable and flexible, uh, uh, flexible manner. I think I can also add that um, in 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 the situations where we are working, uh, conflict, post-conflict, uh, but also uh, authoritarian regimes. Uh, things change very rapidly, so it's, it's it's important that, and many of them, you know, also impacts on women and girls differently, that we are able to continuously change, you know, um, our activities, review, reflect, um, and adjust our work to be able to address, you know, the, the current dynamics um, for women and girls' rights. Thank you so much, Helen. I think that's such a, a clear overview of why this is so integrally important to, to meeting the needs of women and girls' rights, as well as the women, peace and security agenda in a holistic way that responds to, to the self-defined needs of those communities. Thank you. Eva, do you have anything that you'd like to add? Uh, no, and not much to add to what Helen has said. But, you know, we know and research has told us over the last 20 years that, you know, one of the most significant ways to ensure sustainable change and to advance gender equality is to support and resource feminist movements. And, you know, they have the extensive of expertise to advance women and girls' rights, peace and security, as well as form these really essential diverse movements um, that can push and drive forward intersectional change which is inclusive um, of rights of young women and older women, women and girls, refugee, IDPs. You know, again, we, we mentioned, you know, their intersecting identities. And often sometimes, you know, this is not looked at. When INGOs, for example, are operating in a context with um, no women rights organisations from that context, who know their region, who know the needs, who know the priorities, who have done the work for so long. And so it's really important that, you know, long-term flexible funding is not tied to deliverables and and then that way that would also have a positive impact on their organizations it allow them to keep their feminist agenda and, and continue to uh, you know support their structural capacity you know women rights organizations are very spread thin and and they need to survive and i think we need to make sure that you know we continue to push uh for flexible core funding for women rights organizations and and, and that's the way hopefully you know this sector will go Thank you, Eva, and thank you both so much for such an integral and important conversation. Um, if you want to find out more um, about this particular topic, please take, take a look in the show notes for GAPS's research on this called The Key to Change. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for listening to Mind the Gaps, a women, peace and security podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed the episode and hope you listen to our next episode, which will be released in two weeks' time. If you found the episode interesting, please do share with your colleagues and networks. And feel free to subscribe and review the podcast on whatever podcast platform you are listening to us on. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at info at gaps-uk.org. You can find out more about Gaps's work and our future plans on our Twitter at gaps underscore network and by signing up to our monthly newsletter on our website. This podcast is made through the support of the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs through their funding of the Leap for Peace Consortium, which GAPS is a member of. The podcast is hosted by Eva Tabasum and is written, produced and edited by Florence Waller-Carr and supported by the GAPS team. Our thanks also to Andrew O'Connor at Safer World for the technical support and to Jimena Duran at NAMD, who are the consortium lead for Leap for Peace. We look forward to our next episode and to you joining us then.